Hi, it's Marco here. Just before we get started with this episode, I wanted to let you know that this episode is available on our YouTube channel as a video podcast as well. So you can see not only myself and Tarek, but this week's brilliant guest. So head on over there. We've put a link in the podcast description and you can watch this episode as well as listen to it. So why not do that and uh, give us a follow while you're there? That would be great. But now we'll get straight into the episode. Hello and welcome to Page One Extra, the show that keeps you up to date with the latest news and hot topics in the writing industry. I'm Marco. And I'm Tarek. And we are thrilled to be your hosts for this new adventure. Now, if you're a fan of our sister show, Page One, the writer's podcast, then you already know we've had over 150 incredible guests share their writing journeys with us. And you're still going to get those new episodes and those deep dive interviews every Friday, but with Page One Extra, we wanted to take up a notch and tackle the timely issues that matter to writers and readers alike. And we've got a packed show for you today, including breaking news from the writing world, the latest big deals fresh from the London Book Fair, and a special guest who'll join us to discuss a hot topic Ooh. and give us a sneak peek into the latest work. And if that wasn't enough, we'll also be putting our guest to the test at the end, and you, Tarek, oh. with, some, with a game and some quick-fire questions. But for now, let's sit back, relax, and dive into the world of writing with us. On with that first episode. We start off today with the recent news that Amazon will be closing the book depository. Originally a UK-based online bookseller, Book Depository was set up by a former employee as a rival to the online giant with the aim of selling less of more rather than more of less, meaning trying to sell a wider range of books than the usual bestsellers, which clearly was a lifeline for many middleist authors. Yeah. It was bought by Amazon in 2011, a move, of course, which led to concerns about their stranglehold on the trade. But until the recent announcement, Book Depository remained a vital distributor for many authors, particularly in relation to foreign sales. The news of the closure is therefore going to come as a big blow. Now, obviously, it's not unusual for big companies to purchase rivals and then close them down or shutter them in some way, but it does lead to speculation about the health of the industry. This is clearly going to have some impact on authors. Online book sales are dominated by Amazon and increasingly by ebook sales. It makes sense for Amazon, of course, to lock people into their ecosystem, especially with kin- the Kindle store. But what makes sense for Amazon often doesn't make sense for creators. The store's final day of trading will be the 26th of April, with last orders accepted until 12pm on that date. And I think this is going to be a bit of a blow for authors. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the more people are funneled into one major place to buy their books, it's not really a good thing. Where You know, you're going to see less of a focus on on it, on um, wide topics and genres that are you know, open to so many people that you need that kind of entry. Yeah, I mean, and just going back to what the aim of it was, you know, Amazon is focused on, on these big ticket books and the bestsellers and the yeah. celebrity books and all of that sort of thing. So it it does start to shrink the available market for authors that aren't these, you know, celebrity authors or big Yeah, big and I think authors. it also probably shrinks the market for, for physical books. You know, Amazon are, are, are great at selling a lot of stuff, but they want to keep you in. And as you said, they want to lock you in the Kindle store. Yeah, absolutely, so it's going, to, yeah. it's going to push a whole lot more people down the ebook route, which is great for Amazon because they, they sell Kindles and they make money off that. But it's not necessarily great for the health of the, of the industry, I don't think. I suppose another book depository type site might pop up. Yeah, it yeah. becomes increasingly difficult when Amazon has such a stranglehold yeah. on the industry. Yeah, and they might just buy that place up and then exactly. shut it down again. Yeah, exactly. So we'll have to wait and see what happens, but I don't think it's great news for authors at the moment. Now, a connected story in a way, the Publishers Association's latest annual report uh, said that 2022 was a record-breaking year for physical book sales in the UK. A whopping 669 million books were sold, a 3% increase from 2021. Now, interesting, a lot of this success was due to exported books, which grew 8%. Uh, UK home market revenues actually fell by 1%. But, you know, it's impressive numbers there. Yeah, it's, we're, impressive. we're seeing a lot of people buying and enjoying physical books, which a lot of people said, we've got ebooks coming, there's audiobooks, yep. you know, maybe we're going to see a drop in that, but we're seeing the opposite, if anything. And if you drill into the data a bit closer, uh, you actually see that fiction and children's books are really doing well. Uh, as did audiobooks um, and it's always heartening to see these doing well they bring joy and entertainment to readers of all ages and personally I kind of think audiobooks have maybe 
come back in a way because of podcasts. You know, people are getting used to yeah, and listening the pan- to the pandemic. Voice. I think possibly yeah, as yeah, well yeah. was was a spur. And it's not surprising to me that, that books like children's books and stuff still sell well physically because because of the nature of the type of books that they are. I can't really ever see ebooks. No, that's a good point. That, that's a good point. Yeah, but it is interesting that physical books overall are, do, are doing well. And of course, it goes back to if you if you watch our sister podcast, we always ask our guests real book or ebook, and much to Tarek's disappointment, the majority of guests will always say yeah. uh, real book, which I suppose fits in with that data. Yeah, I think I think as much as Amazon, as we said earlier, would love to people to be locked into the ebook ecosystem, I do think physical books are always going to have a place and yeah, probably will definitely. continue to you know probably win out going forward. Now, let's talk about that age-old question, self-publishing against traditional publishing. We've spoken to many writers in the past who've used both methods to great effect, and it seems there are pros and cons to each. Um, Lately, we've been seeing a growing trend towards self-publishing, driven in part, I think, by the Kindle store and the surge of people writing books during the pandemic. Now, a new survey by the Alliance of Independent Authors has found that self-published authors are actually earning more than their traditionally published counterparts. Uh, The the survey had over 2,000 respondents, mostly from North America, and found that the average revenue for self-published authors in 2022 was just over £10,000. In comparison, another report by the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society, published in December 2022, showed the average earnings for the traditional published author was around £7,000. So what's the take-home message from this? Well, according to the December 2022 report, traditional authors have seen a sustained fall in professional writers' income over the past 15 years of around 60%. Self-pubs authors, however, are actually seeing a 53% increase in 2022 over the previous year. I suppose the most important message is to reinforce that self-publication shouldn't be seen as the poor man's route to getting your book out there. And it involves, as we know from speaking to guests, a lot of different skills and doing your own work, especially editing, formatting, marketing, artwork. But you're keeping control of a lot more of the the procedure and a lot more of the proceeds, of course, as well. But I do wonder, you know, sort of alluded to it there, are self-published authors making more or is it that published authors are actually making less money you know it's yeah. still not a lot of money we're talking about no i mean there's a three grand you know difference yeah. between the both of them it's not that much i think we are seeing a drop in traditional published authors revenues compared to what it used to be and, and i think that's partly to do with a number of people that yeah. are writing right now you know the big massive headline deals that we see and we'll chat about some later on that's a very small number of the market yeah. most people are getting you know tiny advances if any advances um and it's really it's it's really just not a lucrative market for a lot of people to work in i think that's right i mean if you i mean we've spoken to our guests about this before but if you if you broke down the hours yeah that it takes to write a book your hourly rate would be significantly below the minimum wage i think unless you happen to land one of these you know seven figure book deals totally and 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 you know i know every story seems to be coming back to amazon right now but but Amazon plays a massive part in this because you've got the Kindle store, which is pushing people into the Kindle store and then it's selling those books for 99 pence and you're getting pennies back on every book sold. And it's not a sustainable model, I don't no. think. When you've, How can something that takes someone a year and a team of people to bring to market then be sold for less than a pound? It just makes well, no sense. funny you should bring that up. We may, we may discuss that Oh, later. interesting. But hey, let's get on with the rest of the news first. Now, we have some troubling news from Hollywood. Uh, The Writers Guild of America has voted overwhelmingly to strike unless a deal can be agreed by May. And it's bringing back some bad memories of 2008 strike. Now, back then, the writer's strike caused chaos in the TV and film world. It led to shortened seasons, confusing storylines, and the cancellation of some beloved shows. Uh, We're looking at you here. Oh, sorry. Heroes wasn't actually cancelled because of the writer's strike, Marco. Marco's put Heroes in the... In the prompt here, people. <laughs> the research needs to get done much, much better than this show. It, it was ruined by the writers. It was right? ruined. It had a much shorter second season, uh, which I remember because people well, the only good Ireland season of Heroes was, was the, the first, first one. Yeah, but yeah, let's be honest. Yeah. I'm not gonna, let's not dive into why Heroes was uh, ruined <laughs> by the strike. But uh, unfortunately, history might be re- repeating itself now. Uh, a report by the Writers Guild of America just released says that writers are being undervalued across the board in the screenwriting industry. Um, it shows that while TV, the budgets in TV have skyrocketed, 
writer-producer pay has actually decreased and compensation for screenwriters has stagnated over the last four years. Now, clearly this is unacceptable. Without writers, there would be no TV shows or movies to produce in the first place. Now, as a result of the impending strike, many productions in Los Angeles and Atlanta have come to a standstill, leaving many industry workers uncertain about their future. And even if the strike is resolved quickly, it can still take years for the industry to fully recover, particularly as it only starts to get back on its feet from the pandemic-related setbacks. It's a pretty tough time to be a writer in the entertainment world, and we'll certainly be keeping a close eye on this story as it develops. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. we were just talking about, you know, how much money... Uh, authors make from their books but yeah. the screenwriting was always viewed as the as the category where you could make money you maybe wouldn't be as well known as a writer but yeah. you would make more money but clearly that's not happening again there seems to be a pattern that these companies uh, the the people at the top continue to make decent amounts of money yeah. but the actual people that produce the content yeah. and and with with film and tv i do think that often screenwriting is you know, the writer comes last in the pile. Yeah. And we've we've experienced that from speaking to some of our guests. But without the writer, you really would have no show. Yeah. I know that a director is vital, actors are vital, all of these things. But the writer is just as vital. Oh, totally. Now, now, my understanding is that because it's been such a massive uh, uh, vote to strike or potentially strike here, um, my feeling is that we're not going to lead to a shutdown like we saw back in 08. I think it's going to show the strength of feeling to studios that people aren't prepared to keep working like this and it's and, and they're, if they're going to test their metal, they will go on strike again. So my hope is that studios just say, right, okay, fine, there's clear lot of strength of feeling here. Let's not test the metal. Let's just give them what they want and let's keep things going. Well, hopefully. You, you've also got to wonder about the 3% that didn't vote for the strike. Yeah. <laughs> we are quite happy to be shafted by the, by the studios. But uh, yeah, no, it's definitely a story to keep an eye on. Yeah. Now, staying in the world of screenwriting, Warner Brothers Discovery, as they're now called, recently announced plans for a 10-season series based on the original Harry Potter books. The series will feature a new cast and bring the beloved story to new audiences while staying true to the books. J.K. Rowling and her agent Neil Blair are going to executive produce alongside Ruth Kenley Letts, and the producer of the movies, David Heyman, is also going to potentially join as an executive producer. Now, the announcement has, of course, sparked mixed reactions, and not only because the Harry Potter franchise has been a very, very controversial topic due to the comments made by J.K. Rowling. Fans of the original films are also worried that a new series like this might ruin their memories of the originals. Regardless, the series is set to move forward and will likely draw in both old and new fans of the Wizarding World. Marco, let me ask you this. How do you feel about another version of Harry Potter being made? Well, great books like Jade City, etc. sit there languishing. Well, I think this is a major problem with TV and film at the moment. Is the, the Hollywood executives seem to be obsessed with like three or four different franchises yep. and IPs yep. and don't want to explore anything new. And I don't really understand it because Harry Potter was only new 20 years ago or 15 yeah. years ago or something. So... You know, why not take the risk on what are, frankly, sometimes better books and get them out there that would be as cinematic and could generate as as big an audience? I yeah, think. no, I mean, I have to say, I find it a very odd move to reboot Harry Potter like this so soon. You know, it's just in the sense that you've got this massive franchise with the branding, with the music, with the look of the of the show, with the magic, with the with the styles, with the costumes. Is all of that going to get chucked to start from scratch? Are they going to keep I know, the, I, the old look? It is, but, it's that, that old thing of too soon. You know, it, and this is putting aside everything controversial about Harry Potter, which merits its own conversation, yeah, frankly. But, does. but looking at it just from an IP point of view, it is mad because everyone still remembers it. Everyone yeah. knows the Harry Potter tune. Are they going to use the same tune? Well, that's, that's, if they're not going to use exactly. the same tune, will people like it? Uh, and you've, the, got, you've got theme parks yeah, based around this entire look of a franchise. It's a very strange idea, um, but the, like I say, executives seem to be very honed in on three or four IPs. You, you've yeah. got the same Lord of the Rings is getting yeah, new movies. Yeah. 
there's the Rings of Power TV show and stuff like that when there's brilliant fantasy books yeah. out there. But then it's, I guess it's just less risk, isn't it? They know the audience is there for it. And... Well, is it less risk though? Because the, the, the Fantastic Beasts Harry Potter films haven't done very well. So well, that's why true. are you suddenly revisiting something? You think because then, you tell the old story that suddenly maybe that's the thinking in. is go back to what they know is a success. I'm not, I'm not convinced by it, but we will wait and see. And I'm sure they know more than me what they're doing. <laughs> Okay, final news story today, Granta magazine. Now, every 10 years they put out a list of the best young British novelists under the age of 40 and their latest has just dropped. Now, it's a renowned list that champions some great authors. Looking at the past list, you've got the likes of Kazuo Ishiguro, Simon Rushdie and Zadie Smith. And, you know, looking at the current list, I think one of the first things that jumps out to me was that 15 of the 20 authors are women. It's the first time women have ever been the dominant voice on the list um, and when you look back at the first list back in 83, it only had six. So it's a huge increase from then. And many of the authors on the list, at the very start of their uh, of their careers, they haven't had much public attention to their world, uh, to their work, sorry, before now. And it brings up the interesting question, you know, is being featured on a list like this a huge boost for up-and-coming authors? And what does it mean for those that don't get on the list? You know, how important are these lists for authors? Yeah, I mean, I think... To answer the first question, I think it must be a huge yeah, no, for these authors to be on a list like this. But you do wonder how these authors are selected. Obviously, it's just a panel of judges that, that, that make this list up. And they've obviously made some amazing picks in the past. But um, I, I do find with lists like this, uh, you know, being someone that writes more genre than literary, they're, they're very, very skewed towards literary Absolutely, writers. yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a slight sort of snobbishness in that these are the good writers. And yeah. If you write genre, you're not a good writer. Oh, yeah. Whereas there are some brilliant British writers under 40 uh, who are writing genre fiction right now, some of the best genre fiction that's ever been written. Yeah. Uh, but they wouldn't be ever considered for a list like that. And and, and that's something, as you see, we've seen it before. Um, we've chatted to authors on the podcast, sci-fi authors, and then... And then you look at people like Margaret Atwood, who is renowned as a fantastic author, and rightly so, and she's won a whole bunch of awards, etc. But she doesn't see herself as a sci-fi author. And and I do wonder, is that because of the negative connotations that being a sci-fi but author brings? I, th- I think undoubtedly there is still that attitude yeah. in the publishing industry. I do think genre fiction more generally has been more accepted and people see the merits of it more than in the past. But it is still looked down upon, I think, by a certain corner of the industry. And that's not to say I should stress anything bad about the people on this list. Oh, no, no. Some of them I have read, and they are fantastic authors, and I'm sure all of them are, and this is going to help their careers. But I just wonder about lists like this that sort of try and say these are the best young... Yeah. When when you're only selecting from a very very slim pool. Subjective yeah. Yeah. views, yeah. No, it's 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 it's. I think, as you said, being on these lists is a great thing and is a great boost to any writer's uh, journey and their career. Um, but yeah, it's if if you don't get on a list, don't put too much weight in it. Don't feel too bad because they're crap. They're just they're just bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now, just a quick look at some of the most notable deals that have been announced, with London Book Fair, of course, having just taken place. First up, Babel by Rebecca F. Quang was, of course, a huge hit last year, selling over a million pounds worth of copies, as well as winning Blackwell's Book of the Year. And now Mei Chen and Natasha Barden at HarperCollins have landed a huge deal for her next two books, which feature, first, an epic multi-generational historical novel following a Chinese-American family through the decades, and apparently it explores the push and pull between the individual ambition and the sweep of history. And second, a thrilling fantasy which takes a tantalising look at dusty archives and unreliable sources. Oh, nice. Oh, another novel that's been making the waves is the debut from Harriet Constable called The Instrumentalists. It's been scooped up by Bloomsbury and uh, it is a huge six-figure deal and a seven-way auction, which is, I mean, it's the dream. Yeah, uh, that's what every author wants. Yeah. Uh, a second book was also included. Translation rights were sold to 11 countries. And the book tells the story of Anna Maria della Pieta, an orphan in 18th century Venice who's on a mission to become Venice's greatest violinist and composer, Greedy, and who becomes the student of Antonio Vivaldi, to be expected in August 2024. 
Uh, it's Pieta, actually. Oh, it's a, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a case of poacher turned gamekeeper, or rather agent turned author, I don't know if that works, uh, <laughs> literary agent Sarah Hornsley's debut thriller, Bad Blood, has been sold by uh, agent Juliet Mushins to editor Phoebe Morgan at Hodder, Stoughton, Hodder and Stoughton in what has been described as a whirlwind 40-hour preempt involving a six-figure deal and a two-book deal. German rights have also been sold after an auction and more international deals are expected after last week's London Book Fair. Now, much of the buzz at the London Book Fair was around the sale of Kayleen Bradley's speculative debut novel, The Ministry of Time. Uh, it's been pitched as The Time Traveller's Wife meets David Mitchell meets Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is a book I've heard loads of great things about. Yeah. Uh, the bookseller reports that Scepter acquired rights in a 48-hour preempt with translation rights to 13 territories and 21 21 studios and production company auctions. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's mental yeah. for TV and film rights. Uh, and it is, it's the stuff that authors' dreams are made Yeah, of. I think all these deals are, but yeah. that's, a, that's a particularly special one. And finally, an interesting announcement by Canongate, which sees them acquiring a short story collection from uh, international Booker Prize winner Lydia Davis. Um, which perhaps isn't in, unusual in and of itself, but what is unusual is that a condition of the deal is that the book isn't sold through Amazon, which is something we've been discussing on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, this is at the request of Davis, who has expressed concern that these mega corporations have too much power and control, and she specifically wanted to support smaller bookshops and businesses, which is you know a, a great move. And if other authors would perhaps follow that, then perhaps authors would start to get paid more fairly. So, Between the Lines is a section where we want to take a deep dive into one of the hot topics affecting writers right now. And this week, we're going to look at something which featured at the recent London Book Fair. Yeah, there was some interesting hints from HarperCollins President Brian Murray at the fair, namely, are we going to see an increase in the price of books? Murray said that an increase was overdue and that the price of books have not moved over the past 10 years and noted that they haven't kept up with the consumer price index. Distributors in particular are feeling the squeeze as their margins get slimmer and slimmer. Now compare that to the practice of Uber giant Amazon, who of course have what must be close to a monopoly on ebook sales through the Kindle store. And I'm sure everyone is very familiar with their practice of dropping ebook prices down to 99 pence on a regular term. Uh, and they went even further this week with a 53 pence release. So um, let's dive into all of that now. And to help us along, we've got author and previous guest on our sister podcast, Sam Holland, here with us in the virtual studio. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Uh, and uh, we're going to uh, hear about your new book, The 20, uh, shortly. But before we get to that, just focusing on this topic of book pricing and this sort of idea of selling a book for 53p um, mm -hmm. as an author how do, how do you feel about something like that I mean it it's really hard so when I, when I've been an author now for seven years and I think in that time as they said that the book prices haven't changed except I think paperbacks have gone from 7.99 to 8.99 mm -hmm. and now I think some are sort of touching on the 9.99 mark but I think ebooks have stayed quite static at sort of you know they, they go up and down but the bottom seems to be either free which is like a temporary promotion thing or yeah. 99p but this this 53p is quite I mean it, I think it came up on Twitter when um, an author sort of highlighted one that was um, being advertised by Arenda Books by mm -hmm. Karen as 53p and obviously the, the tricky thing is we don't know what the deal is behind that. So we don't know of that 53p how much the author is getting. And I think Karen sort of said, look, this is a Amazon price match. It's not us. Mm -hmm. And the author is still getting the normal amount. But but going, even if the author is still getting there, it, sounds, it sets a sort of a bit of an alarming precedent that will readers expect 53p? Will they expect 25p? You know, yeah. how... Where does it stop, in a way? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, when you look at what was coming out of London Book Fair this week, and you've got Harper Collins saying we're going to see an increase in books, and you've got Amazon dropping the price even further, you know, how can they both be right? What 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 path is going to win out here? You think? Well, I mean, it's 
it's the perception i think of what readers will think a book is worth yeah in terms of the con- consumption of it so do readers think a hardback is worth i mean i don't know some of them have been going for they can go for like upwards of 25 quid can't they yeah. um will readers buy a hardback at 25 quid or will they go into asda and buy one for eight pounds 50 yeah um so it's it's what the readers will expect and i'm a bit of a hypocrite in this respect in that i don't really like ebooks so if i'm buying a book i well if i'm buying an ebook i probably won't buy one for more than 99p <laughs> just just because I don't really like them. So I feel like if I'm paying more than that, I want to get something that I hold in my hand that yeah. feels, you know, that I'm a bit old school like that. So I, I am a bit of a hypocrite in that respect. But, yeah, but I, I mean, I, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, at the same time, you've got people, you know, when you rent a movie on Netflix, it costs a minimum of like two ninety nine. dollars uh, Well, not Netflix, sorry, sorry but on sorry, Amazon. It's granddad because you can't rent movies on Netflix. Yes, yeah, sorry, I've selected the wrong old, service yeah. there. Sorry. Um, but, you know, people are willing to rent things for two ninety nine. They're willing to pay four quid for a card that they'll give to someone once and that they'll then go in the bin and stuff like that. Whereas, yeah, a, yeah. And, and a book takes literally years sometimes to write. And then it just seems that that people don't value it enough to to be willing to pay, or not a lot of people to be willing to pay what would be a fair price for it often. But if you can get something at 99p, and there's so much, but it's not like, you know, there's like four books in the world and you can only get a choice of those four. There are so many books. And if you can get one at 99p, and, you know, let's be honest, most of the authors that readers hear about are completely meaningless to them. You know, they know yeah. about Ian Rankin, they know about J.K. Rowling, um, they probably know Lisa Jewell and maybe Gilligan MacArthur, but the rest of us, we're just like a blur of names and crimes and women walking away on on book covers. So, <laughs> you know, there, there, there's nothing to distinguish us. So, yeah. why should they, why should they pay more than a quid if something's there and they want, you know, a few hours of entertainment and they don't really care what they read? Um, you know why would they why would they pay anymore i think that's right and 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 i do find it difficult to you know to put the blame at the feet of people who are paying the prices because you know it's a cost of living crisis going on books are a luxury item perhaps and if an item is being offered for 99 pence who who anyone to say they shouldn't be paying that you know it's not yeah it's not for us to say that I, i do think my biggest issue with it is as we've just said it's the fairness of that and the in terms of how much does the author get in relation to their year uh, plus. And like you said, Sam, the sort of normalization of these yeah, prices, yeah. I think that's the issue. And people will resist. You know, people have come to accept that an ebook is 99p generally. Um, and like you, I'm a bit of a hypocrite here because if I look and I see that the Kindle version is 6 I'm like, I'm not buying that. I'll no, wait until, I mean, I'll well, wait until it drops to 99p or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, but that I find odd that you can get a Kindle for more than you can get a paperback. Yeah, that seems a bit yes. strange in my head. I mean, I'm I'm sort of both sides of the fence in a way. So uh, as Sam Holland, I have hardbacks which look like this, um, mm. and this one costs I'm not even sure some amount, um, which is Harper Collins. So I'm not going to say anything mean about Harper Collins. But on the other side of the fence, I write as Louisa Scar, which are predominantly digital and um predominantly ebook they do do paperbacks but canelo are you know a digital first company and one of my books has been free for quite a few months like we've been literally giving it away i've had nothing from that book but the justification behind it and they've been keeping an eye on the data is that by giving away the first one we get people to buy the second third yeah. fourth fifth yeah. which i can kind of I kind of get behind as long as we're keeping an eye on the data and when we we know what we're doing. Um, but you know those books they go for ninety nine p two quid, uh, three quid a push. I don't I don't think they've ever gone for more than that. But then I get a greater proportion of commission from those books. Mm-hmm. So on the ebooks I get fifty percent. Yeah. So fifty percent of a quid is you know a reasonable amount. But then I don't, I can't even tell you what the uh, percentage I get of a hardback. I, honestly, off the top of my head, I've got a clue. I mean, I mean, look at <laughs> it's it. It's not 50%. physical. No, I mean, look at it, physical books. Are we 
it is the is the push for ninety nine pence normalisation going to lead to the end of hardbacks? You think? There's something about a hardback as an author. I mean, so I'll be honest; it's partly ego. Like to have a hardback is is really nice. I mean, yeah. they do look really nice, and I think the thing about hardbacks is they just you know they're more solid they feel like you're getting something yeah. for the money um so i i i don't think they i don't think hardbacks will go um i think they maybe will get a little bit more um sort of prestige maybe yeah like uh, uh, well do you think hardbacks might sort of almost become like for event books or things like that and it'll become more the norm that most books get paperback and ebook only and hardbacks are only for special editions I mean, and things like that. It, it would be fascinating to know the data behind it. So of, you know, pro- proportionally who buys hardbacks and mm. then proportionally all the books published, how many are hardbacks and how many are paperbacks? I'd probably guess that the majority are still paperbacks. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've always kind of thought that hardbacks must be a tough sell because they're expensive and, um, you know, especially with, as we say, the Kindle book prices, etc. But they must make money off them because otherwise we wouldn't keep seeing hardback releases coming out. So there must be a reason for them. And I don't know if it is. It, is it the prestige thing? Is that, is that, is it, it's okay? Do they take a loss, you think, even on book sales or the cost of production of a hardback, but because it gives it a kind of prestige look and then you can have another relaunch in a year's time almost when the paperback comes out and you keep the event vibe going longer? Well, I mean, when, when yeah. you when you go into Waterstones or something, and you see all the books on the tables and stuff like that, your eye will be drawn to the big hardbacks. Yeah, you know that that's normally the first thing that will catch your eye. So, th- I suppose that there is an element of marketing in in that sense. This is a better book because it's a hardback, yeah, yeah, almost exactly. that kind of vibe. Yeah, and especially if you're giving something away as a if you're going to buy it as a present or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I think having a hardback is is quite nice, but also I do like that aspect that you have. I mean, because the life of a sort of author marketing is pretty short anyway. You get sort of the weeks around the launch, and then it sort of goes quiet again. So if you have a hardback, you do in a way get two goes. Yes. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, you get the hardback, and then sort of it goes quiet again, and then you get a ramp up again as the as the paperback comes out. So and that, that again is targeting different people and different audiences and different you know some pe- different people buy hardbacks to different people buy paperbacks yeah. um i mean and- have you have you found uh, i mean you may not know this off the top of your head but how, how have you found the sales of your first book broke down in terms of like paperbacks to ebooks to Hardback. I should have looked it up. I do probably have the numbers somewhere, but I have no idea. I should <laughs> be more aware. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's let's jump to a future then where ebooks are fifty three pence uh, or mm-hmm. less, and that's a kind of normalised situation. Nobody wants to pay more than fifty pence for a book. We've already chatted earlier on in, in the show about the amount of money that an author makes. You know, we're talking like seven to ten grand a year, really. You know. What's the future for authors, realistically, in terms of the amount of money they're going to make, how much return they get on their work? What What do you see your future being? Personally or in general? Do you uh, think? A bit of both, I suppose. I mean, in general, I think the less... So that the more that books are devalued, or equally, the more that authors are devalued, whichever way you want to look at it, if authors' pay carries on going down, what you're going to discover is that the only people that can, in my opinion, the only people that can afford to write, to be a full-time author or to write, are going to be people in a privileged position Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, whether they come from you know a wealthy family or in my situation, let's be honest, my mortgage is paid by my husband. So I don't make enough money to pay the mortgage uh my husband does and that's why i can write full time not because i'm making any considerable money and this is my ninth book my 10th book will come out in july so i've been writing for seven years and the still the money i earn isn't enough to live on um so you're going to find that that gets a harder and harder decision to make when authors have to have another job or they have to have somebody that supports them, whether that's their parents or that's their husband in my case, or, you know, it, and, and it's been going to become, so, which means you're going to get less diverse voices. You're going to get the same 
probably middle class, probably white people telling the same stories um, because, you know, author pay isn't going to be enough to sustain quite a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be going in the wrong direction just when the industry is, you know, is there, there seem to be steps starting to be made in terms of diversifying it and, and in terms of authors and things like that. But like you say, if the money isn't there, then it's going to it's going to dry up again. And the other threat, of course, is the potential of AI coming in and and yeah, authors I can't, I not can't writing wait. anything. I can't wait for an AI to write my book for me and just <laughs> sit back and let the money come in. Twenty p, twenty p, yeah, exactly. I'll take, I'll take. Amazon will just be pressing buttons and turning them back. <laughs> exactly. they don't need you. Or there'll be authors and it's booksellers, so that's actually quite scary. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Me me personally, I mean, I, I just kind of just write as much as possible and hope that at some point, like something takes off and I make a little bit more money. But um, you have to I think as an author at the moment, you have to predominantly do it for the joy. Mm -hmm. But the other problem is authors haven't got much leverage. What leverage do we have? There's thousands of us. Mm -hmm. It's like. I think when all these strikes are going on, I made a joke to my husband that if authors went on strike, no one would notice for six months. Yeah, <laughs> just, right. You know, that's it would. Right. there's so many of us. And if one mid-list author goes, I'm not working for that money, publishers and editors will just turn around and go, OK, well, I've got I've got 10 submissions from people that will. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The, so, it's a difficult you know, we, position that they're in. There's not a lot of collective bargaining. You know, if, if, they, all, <laughs> if they all team together, then potentially, but that's not going to happen unfortunately i certainly found that um with with my two books they were put up by amazon and there's a certain number of smaller bookstores that refused to stock them because they didn't want to i guess help online competition and i kind of get that but part of me was like well really the only person who suffers here is me because you know you're not really going to do any damage to amazon let's be honest you're a small independent bookstore as much as i would love you to be able to throw a rock to you know the giant it's not really going to make much much of an impact and if they can't buy a book through you they'll probably just go into amazon and buy it so you're just going to push people that way um and yeah and yeah and yeah it means that it's one less place to buy my my book from so it's i don't really know what the answer is basically it's, it's you a, sort of you need the big names to you do need the bigger names to step say in something do, yeah. i mean a couple of authors have refused to have their books sold on amazon yeah yeah um uh, and you, you sort of do need the, the big names to sort of put their careers on the line a little bit and say, look, this isn't, this isn't working. This isn't enough. This isn't sustainable, but you know, they're all right. So, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I try not to get too worried about these things and see it as more of a, what's the word? Um, oh, what's it? So rather than you know writing because it's work, I write because I love it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, that, I would say destiny, but that's not the right word. Sorry, my brain's a bit fuzzled this morning. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so I I yeah. try not to. Yes. Basically, it's an absolute wasteland for authors yeah. in the next 50 years. Cool. That's fine. Excellent. Yeah, what what yeah. an uplifting way to end we'll, this we'll, section. We'll end on that, yeah. <laughs> on that note. I think you just have to think about the story that you're trying to tell, the the you know, the, yeah, that's the right. life you want to lead and how you want to spend it and not... I mean, we are a commercial product at the end. A book, a book is a commercial product. Yeah, you want to make money and make a living off it and... And publishers do need to make money, and they do need to, but but maybe they need to pay us a bit more. Yeah, and pay us on time. That would be nice. I yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're here with Sam Holland, and your latest book is the Twenty. And in this section, we want you to pitch it to us. So tell us why people should be buying your book. Why people should be buying it? Okay. Um, I'll tell you what it's about, and then you can make your own decision. Um. <laughs> So the 20 begins as a um, DCI called Adam Bishop is called out to a wasteland where a body has been discovered and they quickly find four more, so five in total, and they realise that there are numbers hidden, um, written above the bodies, so the killer is counting down. Um, so the investigation begins and Adam is approached by a woman who happens to be his ex-wife, um, who believes that these new bodies are connected to a serial killer from 20 years ago, a man that has been arrested, convicted, and is now in prison, and who happens to be personally connected to her. So um, that's how it begins. It's um, 
it sort of gets more crazy and more bonkers from there. So if you can imagine, we're counting down from 20. There's quite a high body count. Uh, there's quite a lot of blood. If you've read Echo Man, you sort of know what you're going to get. Um, but it's very fast paced. If you like your thrillers to sort of like clip along and have a lot of um, complex and slightly dark, disturbed main characters, then I guess this is the book for you. If you like your books with a pink cover, then maybe give it a miss. <laughs> avoid, avoid this one. And, and how, <laughs> how did you find uh, writing this one as compared with The Echo Man? Um, it, it was your, your typical difficult second book. So The Echo Man I wrote on spec, out of contract, over picking it up, dropping it, over quite a lot of time with quite a lot of love from my agent um this one I sort of wrote and just sort of went I knew I obviously I knew what the concept was I knew who the characters were but it just sort of went a bit mad and I had to send it to one point I had to send it to a friend and I had to send it to my agent and just say what what are we doing with this um and both of them said keep it but so there was like a few minor storylines we had to cut out uh because it just got far too complicated um but yeah, no, I mean, now I've come out the other side, I think it's a lot of fun and I, I really like it and I really love the main characters. But yeah, it was a little bit of a labour of of love. There were several points where I thought, no, we're going to have to scrap this. This is, <laughs> this is just insane. I'm... And I thought no one's going to want to read this. It's just like, ugh. <laughs> well, I've I've read it and it's a fantastic book and I liked it as much as the Echo Man. I thought it was excellent. And <laughs> um, I would really recommend people do buy it or listen to the show. So my my question was when you come to to write a second book you've got a lot less time you've got your you know as you said you got your first book on spec as much time as you wanted second book you've got what eight months to a year really to knock it out from start to finish no. less than that no so i i made the mistake of when i signed the contract for echo man we had um another publisher who's canelo who was interested in in echo man but we said okay we're going to go with harper collins but do you want some other books from Sam and they said yes basically so I signed up at the same time I signed up to write two books for HarperCollins I signed up to write five books for Canelo <laughs> so I wrote wow. seven books over two years essentially Jesus oh no eight months I didn't have eight months there was no eight months so how I long would... did it take you start to finish to write the 20 oh three maybe four. Oh wow, wow. That's, that's I mean that's quite long you not well. have a nervous breakdown writing that many books in that short space of time I think yes I quietly did <laughs> I think I think the 20 is my nervous breakdown okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just like a basically a hundred thousand words of slightly nervous breakdown but um but the thing is like I really enjoy it so it doesn't and once I get into a book I tend to clip along yeah I tend to go quite fast um, once I've got the hang of who the characters are and where I want it to go. So it didn't it didn't feel that I was sort of like working. But my deadline, my deadline was still quite a long way. As long as my deadline's far off, then I'm quite happy. And I wrote, I think I finished it way before the deadline. So I had time to have that panic and send it to my agent and my friend and say, mm-hmm. ah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was fine, but I mean, it is fine. And I said, I always said I wouldn't do it again. And then I've signed up to more contracts. So now I am doing it again. <laughs> and, and when we last spoke to you about the Echo Man, uh, you, you told us about your research into serial killers. This one obviously features more serial killing. I mean, have you got plenty of, plenty of grisly stuff in the bank for the future books as well? Oh yeah, always. There's always... Um, I mean, so the inspiration for this one came from, I guess, two sources. Um, one was I take the dog the, who's quietly sleeping now. I take him in the woods and they're, I think it's something the Forestry Commission do, but basically they spray paint numbers on trees. Oh, yeah. I, I uh-huh. to say we're going to cut them down or something. But anyway, so that gave me the inspiration for, obviously, you're, as a horror, as a crime writer, your mind goes straight to, of course, there's, but there's bodies under there. Um, so originally it was a countdown from 100. So luckily you'll be glad I told you. <laughs> 20. Um, and then the secondly was a, um, my brother-in-law, bizarrely, um, is a consultant anaesthetist. So he spends his days sticking needles in people but what i find remarkable about him is he actually has a needle phobia so if he see if somebody comes at him with a needle he passes out um which i find an incredible sort of phenomenon about him yeah um 
So it was those two things together. So in the book, it's a bit of a spoiler, but in the book, Adam, the main character, has a phobia of needles. Um, and then that's where sort of it all came from and just went from there, really, just descended into this sort of madness. <laughs> Excellent. And and so when is the 20 out? Uh, it's out on the 11th of May in the UK and this, I think the 2nd of May in the US. So, and it's out in lovely hardback as well. It's out in beautiful. It's a prestige oh, release. Yes. I know it's got a little it's a shiny fantastic front cover. I can't really that. see it. But it's got shiny letters, oh, and it nice. does it does look very nice. So it is out in hardback, um, as is the the US version, which I can't find. Um, but yeah, so second of second of May for US and eleventh May for UK. Great. Well, Brilliant. go out and get that. <laughs> So welcome back. In this section uh, of the show, we're going to play a very quick game and test the writing skills of our guest, Sam Holland, and our very own Tarek Ashkenani. So um, I have given them a recent thriller and the summary of that thriller, and their challenge was to write the opening line. So I'm now going to read their opening line uh, and the real opening line, and they have to guess which is the real opening line. But before that, I'll tell you what book it was. It was No Plan B, the new Jack Reacher thriller from Lee Child and Andrew Child. Is, um, did he have a plan C? Well, admit that would be the same. I should probably read it. Yeah. Um, and the, the summary is, when your name is Jack Reacher, the truth is always worth doing time for. Gerardsville, Colorado, one tragic event, two witnesses, two conflicting accounts. One witness sees a woman throw herself in front of a bus, clearly suicide. The other witness is Jack Reacher, and he sees what really happened. A man in a grey hoodie and jeans, swift and silent as a shadow, pushing the victim to her death before grabbing her bag and sauntering away. Reacher follows the killer, not knowing that this was no random act of violence. It's part of something much bigger, a sinister secret conspiracy, isn't it always? With powerful people on the take, enmeshed in an elaborate plot that leaves no room for error. If any step is compromised, the threat will have to be quickly and permanently removed. Because when the threat is Reacher, there is no plan B. So there you go. That is the summary. So um, I'm now going to read in uh, any order uh, the real first line the and your two attempts at first line okay so uh, the first line that i'm going to read you is it started with the bus so that's option one is it started with the bus option two the meeting was held in a room with no windows Mm -hmm. Uh, and option three jack noticed the woman first so those oh, are the they three, are very good. That's three difficult. choices. They're all quite similar in the way that they're, you know, I could actually see all three of them being an opening line. So uh, I'm going to go to Sam first for her guess. Right. I I like the, the room with no windows. Okay. Tarek? Can I hear them again, please? Yeah, Tarek knows that that's not, oh, I could be double bluffing. No, yeah, you could be. That's true, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, you're fine. I'm also going to go for the room with no windows. Well, you're both right. It turns out we should have thought this through more clearly <laughs> in terms of how the game because might Because you're work. not going for a road, you didn't go for mine. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, yes, that is, the, that, is the, that is the real opening line. Um, Sam had actually written a second line as well. She held herself with an elegance, a confidence that showed her beauty better than any tight dress or lipstick could. Oh, that's actually a, that's a very good. He, he, he loves line. talking about how women look, doesn't he? He always <laughs> talks about how women look. That's why I love Jack Richard books so much. Just <laughs> make that clear. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you both, I guess, won that one, and we'll have to rethink that for this episode <laughs> as, to, as to how that's going to work. I think. Um, but before you go, Sam, we do have one final thing, which is some quickfire questions. I've got some questions loaded into a program here and i'm just going to press the button we're going to ask you three of them you just give us the first answer that pops into your head so the first one is what book should everyone read before they die oh my god uh (laughs) 
You should have given me a bit of notice for that one. <laughs> yeah. I can think of um, I can think of one book in particular, Sam, perhaps. The what, sorry? I can think of one book that you might have on your desk. <laughs> the twenty, possibly. <laughs> oh well uh, yeah, but that's a bit self promoting, isn't it? <laughs> what book should everyone read before they die? Can uh um what do I God that's quite a tough question. Sorry, <laughs> this is just gaping silence. Um, I'm gonna so I'm gonna go off at a tangent and say what books should every novelist read okay. in terms of helping them with their craft. And I'm probably gonna go with the book that I have up here, which is um, good old Save the Cat writes a novel. But okay. it's nice. it's not what you asked. So, but it's the only thing I can think of that's at the fine. moment. No, it's fine. fine. It's fine. Next Maybe question. give me another one and cut that. <laughs> If you could give one piece of advice to aspiring writers, what would it be? Read Save the Cat. Read Save the Cat. Well, apart from Read Save the Cat, um, I would say write the book that you want to write, not what you think will sell or what you think uh, the market is liking at the moment. Because A, you're going to be doing it for a long time, whether you write quickly or you write slowly, you're still going to be editing it over and over again. Um, And B, by the time you've written it, it's sold and yeah. it's come out, the market will have moved on anyway, so you can't second guess. And you might as well enjoy yourself because, as we've discussed... You're not you going to get paid. paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, final question is... Oh, no, that's the same question. <laughs> this is an odd question. Um, what's your favourite word to use that you use in your writing? Oh, that I shouldn't use quite so much. I was getting worried I've that been question using, was going to be, Michael. I've been using reverent... Reverent. All the time. Okay. Bloody reverent. Every single, <laughs> every single chapter. I have to search for it now and delete it because I seem to. He held it rever- reverently. I don't even <laughs> but I seem to like it. So yeah, that that That's would be my favorite. Okay, excellent, nice. great. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Sam. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was great fun. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks very much to Sam for joining us for today's episode. As discussed, her new book, The Twenty, is out next month. And thanks as well to all of you for joining us on our debut episode of Page One Extra. Don't forget, you can watch every new episode of this podcast and our regular interview series, Page One, the Writer's Podcast, on our YouTube channel. Or you can download it as a podcast by searching for Page One Extra on your favourite podcast app. It would help us hugely if you could subscribe on YouTube, click that thumbs up button and follow us on your favourite podcast app. Even better if you could give us a comment and a rating and review on the podcast app as well. We hope to become one of your main sources of writing news and shooting up the charts will really help with all that. Now, in the meantime, you can always get in touch by emailing us at podcast at rightgear.co.uk or by sending a tweet in Twitter machine, which is at UKPage1, or on Mastodon at writing.exchange forward slash at page1pod. Otherwise, we hope to speak to you on Friday in the new Page One The Writer's Podcast episode, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more writing news and discussion of burning topics affecting writers with another great guest. See you later.